when you want really, really badly to believe in something, it's difficult to explain away all the things that are wrong with it in your own mind. Anything that had a mystical or magical element or quality to it, people were going to flock to. And when it validated their religion and the things that they believed, they flocked to it in bigger numbers. People are particularly gullible in matters that promise them eternal life. Hmm. So anything that's associated with their religion, they're definitely going to latch on to pretty damn hard. Blessed with almost $47,000 after using Prayer Rug. Just it's like prayer it, it's rug. like it's it's supposed to be a proper name. First name is Prayer, last name is Rug. After <laughs> using Prayer Rug, $47,000. These things are still out there. And there are people who believe with all of their heart, mind, and strength that this is a real thing and that it is worthy of veneration. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell, and it's time to get unbound. Dem bones, dem bones, dem goat bones. Just a dead goat in a cave that people actually worship to this day in a story that may not be better than Ezra, but will have you asking, where have you gone, St. Rosalia? Uh, we're going to talk about her and the goat who stole her fame, along with a lot of other craziness in just a few. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight's topic is holy relics and enchanted objects. Yes, enchanted. Evangelicals don't like that word, but tough shit. That's precisely what they are. And we're going to talk about some of the crazy things people have found to venerate, sensationalize, and profit from over the centuries in the name of Christianity. We're going to talk about fingers and goats, but not at the same time along with some other wild and crazy tales of ecclesiastical chicanery, but not before we dive into two heartwarming tales. I almost typed heartwarming in my notes, which <laughs> seems more appropriate, of Christians behaving so badly, it's leaving me without any kind of pithy, humorous descriptor. So let's just go with that. Let's just call this one Christians Behaving Badly Heartwarming Edition. And I'm going to just give a trigger warning here for sexual abuse by clergy. I think that's warranted. Yeah, I think so it is. So let's just dive right into this. So a church in Portland, Oregon that has been accused of operating like a cult actually manages to be worse than was originally thought. The saga involving a sitio church in Portland, Oregon became public last August when a woman sued her former pastor, Jimmy Ellis Wicks Jr., and that church, claiming he forced her to work for the ministry without pay and sexually harassed her along the way. The woman described the leadership of the church controlling her every move. Her brother tried to rescue his sister from the Asidio church, but she contends in the suit that she couldn't leave the church home or businesses without an escort and was prevented from accessing her phone, electronics, or other personal belongings. Sounds very cultish. You think? Very cultish. Seriously. She said most of her pay was taken by the church for what its leaders said was to cover her room and board and mandatory church tithing, the suit says. Wicks eventually started sending her text messages in which he implored her to masturbate as a form of therapy, demanded that she FaceTime with him when she did so. Of course he did. Of course he did. And instructed her how to use sex toys, she alleges in the suit. Of course, as is usually the case, this woman wasn't alone. 
Other women have since come forward telling the police similar stories. They were all afraid to leave because they might have been left homeless, and they were also convinced that no man would ever have them. The church leaders involved themselves in the women's lives and then made themselves indispensable to them. Toxic Relationships 101. Yes. And that's just the contention in the original lawsuit. And that's just the contention in the original lawsuit, which asked for damages of $1.5 million along with back pay that she was never paid and $50,000 for medical costs. The same plaintiff has now brought an amended lawsuit that includes more allegations against Wicks and the church's lawyer, Jeong John Bang. That's a mouthful. It is. It also includes more defendants, specifically companies that may have been run by the church and that profited from her labor. Oh, go after him with as many guns blazing as you possibly fucking can. Seriously. The revised suit accuses Wicks and Bang of conspiring to have church members work for the businesses for little or no wages and then using income and profits from the businesses to pay Bang's and Wicks' salaries by real estate and hide profits. This is just so fucking typical. It is. It's like they do this to people. They, they do this to their fucking clergy all the time. Yes. It's crazy. None of what I'm reading here that this woman went through, I mean, aside from the sexual abuse, none of it is even remotely unfamiliar to me. No. I've encountered this from, you know, various churches, whether it was a church that I was applying to be the youth pastor for or in other instances and cases like the time that I was encouraged not to take pay for those couple of nights that I had to usher at TVN. Oh, yeah. yeah. They always encourage you to not take money for things. And what's the purpose of that? The purpose of that is so that they can keep it. Yes. You know, that's most of it. My home church didn't get paid on my behalf when I worked for TVN, but it's that same mindset. It's like, don't take the money out of that organization. They're doing good things and they're spreading the gospel. So... You know, you should just do this. You should just do this out of the goodness of your heart. And just the sheer notion that they garnished most of her wages, including deciding how much she was going to tithe. Oh, you know what? That's real goddamn familiar to me. Mm. Yeah. Had we gone that final step with me getting credentials through the AG, tithing to, I forget whether it was the district or general council, was mandatory. Yes. And they would keep tabs on how much money you were making. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't giving them 10 fucking percent, watch out. Oh, yeah. Some people are going to say that I'm latching on to the wrong details here. But it goes to the overall manipulation of the situation. And the fact that she allowed this to happen, I think, was just, it, it was kind of a gateway thing for them to get her to do whatever the hell else they wanted. Right, yeah. The new suit also alleges that Bang and Wicks required members of the church and employees of the companies to apply for unemployment benefits, with Bang assisting members with the applications as their legal counsel, even though the members were working for the church-run businesses. These were main allegations. Wicks and the other defendants continue to deny any wrongdoing, because of course they do. If you're clergy and you are God's anointed, you can't do any wrong. Yeah, that's and a problem. And, you know, just this this whole business of men lording power over women, especially sexual power. Yeah. You know, these people can talk all they want about how they think on a more moral level about sex. But this is what happens when 
people in your life are suppressing your sexuality, making you feel like there's something wrong with your sexuality. It may be an extreme example, but I can only imagine that this person grew up in an environment where sex was very, very bugaboo. And as soon as he figured out the kind of things that he liked, instead of pursuing those interests in any way that was remotely healthy, he chose this. Yeah. Because his entire viewpoint of what sex is had been so skewed from childhood right. that, you know, I'm, I'm not making an excuse for him. I'm just saying mm -hmm. this is the way that it is. This guy is a piece of shit. Well, yeah. And there's, there's no doubt about that. But it all comes back to environments and the things that we're exposed to, especially when we're young, and the things that we're taught about certain things, especially sex. They love to vilify sex at every turn. Yeah. So as soon as the decision-making process shifts from the parents who are going to give you a whooping if they find that porno under your bed mm. to you being able to explore things the way that you want, then you couple that with the guilt that comes from this notion that what you're doing is sinful. And I don't care if you're a Catholic priest or if you are an evangelical minister or who you are. When you've got those thoughts running through your head from the time that you're a kid, then I'm sorry, this is how it can manifest right. and does in a lot more instances than anyone wants to think about, even outside the Catholic Church. Of course. We already, we already know what those people are about. Yeah. But even outside of that particular branch of Christianity, right. this kind of shit runs rampant. Mm -hmm. You just don't hear about it as much in evangelical circles. Maybe we should take a closer look at that. Yeah. Maybe we should and yeah. make people understand a little bit better. You know, the sexual abuse thing, it's not just for Catholics anymore. Oh, not that God. it ever was. No. But no. Uh, I'm rambling enough about that particular subject. <laughs> this next one, oh my goodness, MAGA guy, madness at its, at its finest here. This guy is a doozy. Well, for my next story, let's talk about the Republican candidate for the Oklahoma State Senate, right-wing activist Jaron Jackson. I hate that name. <laughs> Sounds too much like Janet Jackson. Yeah, a little bit. He'd made news last September endorsing the MAGA candidate for Senate, Jackson Lamire. Lamire? I'm not even going to worry about uh, getting his name getting his yeah, name right. I know. And that's the level of respect. Names are important. Names are an important thing, but who gives a fuck? <laughs> Call him Lamire. Yeah. Sounds like the liar. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I'm going with that. Yes. Jackson's comments were concerning. Speaking at the campaign rally, Jackson declared that he hopes to see the establishment of military tribunals that will send godless commies to burn forever in a lake of fire. How very 1955 of him. Yes. And last September on Twitter, Right Wing Watch called attention to another comment he'd made. Self-proclaimed American patriot Jaron Jackson would love nothing more than to shoot godless commies in the face. But since he's a law-abiding patriot, he won't do that because that's illegal. Or is it? I would assume that it is, but from the perspective of a dude like this, I don't know. Let's hear the rest. <laughs> Sounds like a real cool, considerate type of dude, right? Well, now he's running for state senate, bringing that type of sensible conservatism into that race as well. Here's how his newest campaign commercial goes. We are at war with communism, Jackson says in the campaign ad as he sharpens a knife. Oh, <laughs> my God. Or I should say, communism is at war with us. 
This war is designed not to look like a war. They're coming for our kids. They've destroyed the economy. They've hostaged the government. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. I also think it's the only way we overcome. I think that's the way that we win. I know that's the way we win. I'm running for state senate, and on June 28th, I'd like to ask you for your vote and for you to unleash me. Unleash him. Yes. No, dogs belong on leashes. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, that all just makes me real comfortable with this guy. How he keeps using the terms of war. He also calls his campaign donations bullets and says he wants to spread the gospel to spark a state sovereignty movement and to engage the godless commies. Oh, God, this terminology. I mean, I mean I that's swear, from 1956. It, it, it gives me Jack Chick vibes to begin yeah. with. And also, it's a very stereotypical kind of thing that you would hear during the Cold War. Yes. And just one more comment on this whole goddamn thing. This quote right here, the, the contents of this ad is the single most white evangelical thing that I've heard in yeah. a while. Yeah. And it encapsulates well the way these people think. Mm. I wish I could slap these people with a clue by four. A clue by four? Yes. Is that your phrase? Yes, it is. Very well done. Well, I've heard played. it before, but clue by four. It's my term of choice. Yeah, I people. think I'm going to start using this and using <laughs> it liberally. They glorify war so much, and his idea of godless commies are basically anyone who doesn't believe in his right wing views. Just like anyone whose views don't jibe with the average MAGA or Proud Boy Ugh. are liberals. Yeah, right. You know, not everyone who understands just how batshit insane your hapless messiah is are necessarily liberal. No. Not everyone who disagrees with you is a quote-unquote liberal or, and I love this affectionate little term, libtard. Yeah, no. whatever. No. It, we're just people that disagree with you. And... If you would just take five seconds to have an actual meaningful discourse about this, then maybe we would come to some sort of meeting of the minds. I would never support uh, 45. Oh, God. But I feel like there's always more room to understand the other guy. And if you want to be understood, then you need to take the time to understand, too. But that's not the way these people think. It's a very my way or the highway approach that they take to everything. And... It's a very toxic way of thinking about anything. And let me tell you, the toxicity levels in that ad are very, very high. Yeah. And on that happy note, our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. If you can help us out with your dollars, fantastic. It comes out to about a buck an episode. $5 a month is the, uh, is the base. And if you are able to help us in that way, then we thank you in advance for considering that. If you just flat out can't afford to help us right now with your dollars, then help us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, all of the things that make podcasts grow. And as I say every week, tell someone new about the show this week. Tell two people. Tell 10. Tell 50. And let them tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends, and so on and so on. And we'll, we'll just start blowing the doors off of this thing. Because there's plenty of people out there that still need to hear this messaging, and there is a world out there that needs to get and stay unbound. So help us help them one starfish at a time, patreon.com slash unbound podcast network, or just give us a few positive taps here and there, a five-star rating, a share and a like on our content, 
anything that you can do to help us out in that regard is going to get this message out there to a broader audience. And if you care about the lives of your evangelical friends that are still ensnared in this thing, then don't be shy. Let them know we're here. 105 episodes, they're going to find something that's going to jive with them, that's going to make them think, that's going to keep them up at night until they deal with it. And that's really what I'm going for here, is to make people think and understand what it is that they're part of and how their lives are just being pulled right out from under them and how they can make it stop. Help us help them make it stop in any way that you can. And just before we dive into our main topic tonight, we want to uh, let you know what we've got in the works for next week. Uh, strap in for this one or strap on, depending on what your perspective uh. is. Uh, we're going to be talking about pornography. And is pornography wrong? We're going to look at the pros, the cons, and give some advice on how to determine the answer to that question personally and situationally. Because I don't think there's a blanket answer to that question. And there are a lot of nuances and ethical considerations that have much more to do with what's being consumed than it does the consumer. So make sure you come back for the discussion on that. For right now, let's get into this discussion on holy relics and enchanted objects. I don't find much of this terribly enchanting. No. But there's there's a lot to be gleaned from what evangelicals learned from their crazy grandfather, the Roman Catholic Church. So let's get into that right now. So the concept of objects holding spiritual power is far older than any Judeo-Christian source. But since we're focused on how Christianity approaches this concept tonight, we're not going to look any further back than the Bible. And really, we don't have to. There's more than enough of a foundation laid for viewing objects as having powers they flatly don't possess right in the Bible to make the point clear. So without further ado, let's take a look at some of these examples in the Bible, going right back to book number one, Genesis 28, 10 through 12, and 16 through 18, reading from the NIV, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, we, we don't know what place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. So it's an uncertain place. If they told us where, it would be a certain place. Mm. He stopped in an uncertain place. Okay, now here's, here's where it gets good. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. So he slept on a rock. He had a vivid dream and decided that the rock was magical. And, you know, there are many other examples of objects being imbued with power that show up in uh, the Old Testament in particular. And I just want to take a look at a couple of these uh, that ReligiousTolerance.org has compiled. This is actually an article on divination, magic, and occultic activity in the Bible, which we've already touched on a bunch of times here. But there are a couple of examples here that do fit the topic. So let's take a look just a couple on their bullet list here. First, there's uh, the Urim and Thummim. These mm. were two objects mentioned in Numbers 27, 21, and also in 1 Samuel 28, 6, 
I've heard them described different ways. Yeah. But the most common description that I've gotten of these is that they were basically smooth stones and were kind of the they were kind of the magic eight ball of their day. <laughs> the high priest would consult them to determine the will of God. So basically these were two stones that more than anything else represented yes and no. Oh, you wow. could ask God a yes or no question, reach into your pocket, pull out the stone, and whatever stone you pulled out was the answer. Wow. Imagine if they had just asked him at one point, are you actually real? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, roll the credits. That's it. That's the end of the book. That's the end of the religion right there. There's some people that think that they might have worked more like a pair of dice, but I don't get that from the descriptions no. and the way that they were used. They didn't leave anywhere near as much to chance as right. a pair of dice. But there was another thing that I used to hear about people casting lots. And these sound a lot more like they could be dice but the way that I've heard, the way I've seen them described, they're also a lot more like runes. And I think that there's kind of an amalgamation of things going on here because I know they cast lots to determine who was going to uh, take Jesus's robe from the crucifixion site. So there, there's a chance aspect to it. And there are ties to a couple of different things that I see here in terms of like games of chance. But I think that dice or runes or, or dominoes even, right. might actually fit the description of what these things were. And then there's Jacob's rod that budded and was then placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark itself, a particularly badass relic, especially if you ask Indiana Jones. Mm. We also see Moses lifting up an effigy of a snake in Numbers 21 as a foreshadowing of the atonement. People were questioning God and Moses about whether or not leaving Egypt was a good idea, why it's taking so goddamn long to complete a two-week trek from Egypt to the Promised Land, you know, stuff like that. So God being the practical thinking, pragmatic, loving, caring father that he is, without a trace of mental illness or personality disorder, deals with the situation by sending fiery snakes to kill any motherfucker who dares to question him. The cure was found in this snake on a stick that Moses waved over the crowd and then poof, no more snakes and everybody is healed, you know, except the dead people. Yeah. Moving into the New Testament, I mean, we, we could we could stay in the Old Testament and talk <laughs> about some other shit, but, you know, let's steer it a little bit more toward Jesus here. And when we do move into the New Testament, we start seeing this recurring phenomenon that revolves around touching the clothes of perceived holy men and also things like prayer cloths that endure to this day. Matthew 9, 20 through 22, reading from the NIV, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, Jesus's cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Then we have Acts 19, 11 and 12, also reading from the NIV. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. This is one of the many things that I love about the NIV yeah. and these little uh, grammatical faux pas that it commits. Mm -hmm. Because I'm, I'm going to geek out for just a second here and point out that if you read this sentence the way that it's written in the NIV, it's the handkerchief's illnesses that are cured. I'm just putting that out there, okay? 
This is how much thought went into this version. <laughs> we are going to look at this part of it in greater depth a little bit later on. But I want to turn back the clock just a little bit and take a ride back into the Middle Ages and look at some of the Catholic relics that emerged during that time. And there's a reason why these are significant. So just yeah. keep listening. Now, it took a while for the concept of holy relics to catch on in earnest, but by the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church had truly adopted a there's-a-sucker-born-every-minute attitude toward the populace, and they knew that the more mystical and illusory the details were, the more interest these things would pique. Most of the people that they duped into doing things like paying for access to or the privilege of venerating holy relics had never read the Bible. They couldn't since literacy wasn't a big thing in the Middle Ages. But here's the thing. Many of the clergy, and even some of the endless parade of charlatans who knew a good grift when they saw one, had read the Bible, and they knew the kind of power that could be wielded with fake snakes and magic rocks. There was also a lot of witchcraft in the Middle Ages, and people were as much into magic and mysticism then as they are now, even more so then right. than they are now. So... Anything that had a mystical or magical element or quality to it, people were going to flock to. And when it validated their religion and the things that they believed, they flocked to it in bigger numbers. In her 2019 article, Blind Faith, Religious Forgeries from the Middle Ages to the Age of Technology, Justine Damiano tells us that holy relics, quote, were thought to be religiously significant and were said to have magical properties, healing and helping those who possessed them. There was a thriving market centered on holy relics, and people jumped at the chance to spend money acquiring them. Naturally, they were a source of controversy, and many, if not all, were fake. Sure, it was a lucrative, albeit unethical, business, but I'm not surprised that individuals took advantage of the market. Neither am I, Justine. <laughs> I, I've said this many, many times before, that the reason why Christianity is still around today is because it's the product of some stellar fucking marketing. Yeah. So the church itself, along with a long parade of charlatans and peddlers, made serious bank off the hapless public, especially the sick and infirmed and those who were down on their luck. Some relics came with promises of wealth and prosperity. Some promised healing. Most came with a hefty price tag, and people would spend their last penny or equivalent of for the chance to turn their situations around. And do I even need to clarify that pretty much all of that shit was fake? that it never came close to meeting the three-level criteria established by the church that made an object a relic? That's right. These things had degrees of relicness. No, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And it broke down just like this. First-class relics were items directly associated with the events of Christ's life or the physical remains of a saint. Second-class relics were items that had been owned or used by a saint. Third-class relics were objects that have come in contact with first- or second-class relics. So, I mean, you just see how things start to diminish. Yeah. But uh, I guess, if you wanted, you could create an infinite number of these third-class relics by simply taking an object and touching it to a first- or second-class object. I would imagine that no one peddling magic rocks or slivers of wood that were supposed to be from the cross but were probably from some dude's walking stick, ever bothered with that step. So with that, let's take a look at some of the so-called relics that the church has peddled over the years. 
And I'm going to start with the obvious one, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We're going to talk just for a minute about the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud was discovered in 1354, but it was already under scrutiny by 1389. The Bishop of Troyes dismissed it as a fake with no scientific anything to go by, just more common sense than average for the circles in which he moved. The modern Catholic Church refuses to take a side on it at all. But I see a distinct lean in this description by the current Pope Francis, who calls the shroud, quote, an icon of a man scourged and crucified. (laughs) Very slick. Um, We won't say it's Jesus, but it looks like a guy who matches his description. (laughs) You see, that's kind of what he's saying there. I do think that the shroud and its degree of detail, coupled with the fact that you can see the outline of an entire body and not just a face. If it was just a face, it would be it would be a different story. But it's not just a face. And I think it makes this example more than coincidental, but definitely not authentic. Someone, probably some Catholic bishop or someone else in the church, saw the potential profitability of a relic like this. People would come from miles around to see it, venerate it, make offerings to it. Very, very Catholic, that idea. But you know what isn't a Catholic idea? Forensics. A recent study of the Shroud, just back to 2018, debunks it Dexter style by going after the inconsistencies in the blood flow patterns depicted on it. Right. This is just a quote from, what is the source? LiveScience.com. That's where I got this. Just a, a quick quote on this. From the standpoint of forensics, I thought this was really interesting. This is all the gotcha that you need for this. Forensic anthropologist Matteo Barini and chemistry professor Luigi Garlicelli, I'm so glad I'm Italian, (laughs) Garlicelli, used a live volunteer and a mannequin to study how blood from Jesus's crucifixion and spear would have flowed onto his burial shroud. Using both human and synthetic blood, they were unable to find a single position in which the blood flowed onto experimental cloths to create the stain pattern on the Shroud of Turin. They published their findings in the Journal of Forensic Sciences on July 10th, 2018. Now, it was someone's likeness on that shroud, but it wasn't Jesus's likeness. That much is certain. And the face that they chose sure does have a familiar look about it. That same sullen expression and enigmatically Western European features that you see in so much medieval occult art. And while we're on the subject of Jesus's face, there are loads of examples of people seeing Jesus's face in places where it just isn't. But the reasons why they emerge are at the same time random and purely coincidental. When people see faces in a piece of cloth, it usually means something like that the cloth had been folded in a certain way leaving creases in it that over time revealed something that sort of kind of looks like a face. And there are literally countless other explanations. It's all very, very random, but our brains don't look at it that way. Right. And most of our perceptions of these things have everything to do with this little trick that our brain plays on us right. when our imagination kicks in and thinks that it's seeing something that isn't there. So when faces show up in a piece of toast, just for the sake of example, it has far more to do with the texture of the bread and how it tends to toast more quickly in some spots than in others. That's the entire explanation for it. The rest of it's very, very random. So why do we see faces everywhere? Why do we see a face in that slice of toast if it's nothing but random differences in the surface of the bread? 
Why do we see faces in the clouds or in trees or in the outlines of some houses and buildings or in the grill of a Plymouth neon? <laughs> Remember, say hello to neon. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and it certainly did look like it was smiling at you and saying hi, didn't it? Yes, it did. Well, here's an interesting bit. Science has an answer to this. Neuroscientists at the University of Sydney now say how our brains identify and analyze real human faces is conducted by the same cognitive processes that identify illusory faces. From an evolutionary perspective, it seems that the benefit of never missing a face far outweighs the errors where inanimate objects are seen as faces. That's a quote from Professor David Allais. Um, He's the lead author of the study from the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney. There is a great benefit, he says, in detecting faces quickly. But the system plays fast and loose by applying a crude template of two eyes over a nose and a mouth. Lots of things can satisfy that template and thus trigger a face detection response. There are multiple theories out there as to why we do this, some having to do with protection from wrongdoers, but with our ancient ancestors dealing with so many other predators in their environments, it isn't likely that it eventually coded into our DNA as a defense mechanism to recognize another person as a threat. It's just not likely. Another theory suggests that this is just part of our sexuality and the first thing we notice about someone is their face. Our brains send one of two signals to us, viable mate or not a viable mate. In other words, we're all out there constantly down to fuck anything with a face that we can also use to make babies. Um, maybe, but I'm not convinced. I'm more comfortable with the I don't know on that one. Um, although physical attraction does usually start somewhere, and more often than not, it does start at eye level. So. Right. So there might be something to it, but I'm just not, I'm not going to go all in with that theory. But, you know, that I don't know comes in handy in situations like religious relics, because it's not just the Shroud of Turin. It's the faces that show up on toast or on vegetables or in the decomposition of a banana, all of which have been cited as proof that Jesus exists, because Jesus-looking images appear randomly in nature, or more to the point, images to which we assign that meaning as a base tendency coupled with religious indoctrination is more where it comes from. We first see the face, then we decide that it's a familiar one, and most of us have at least an amalgamated image in our heads of what Jesus is supposed to look like. The banana example that keeps making its rounds on the internet, I'm pretty sure most people have seen this by now. Um, But yeah, there was someone who was convinced that Jesus was showing up in a ripening banana. Mm. I thought the dude looked a bit more like Bob Marley, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. I didn't. I saw more Marley than Jesus in that one. Mm. And, you know, I, I also once saw a red fraggle in a sweet potato. <laughs> no lie. But, you know, I didn't erect a shrine. Had it been the information age, it would have been Instagrammed, then buttered and eaten. You know, that's, yeah. that, that's what would have happened to it. With all due respect... And you know what? And this may sound a little gross, but with all due respect, take a look at a pug's ass sometime. Behold, he is with us. There's <laughs> yeah. a very Jesus-y kind of, sh- kind of shape that takes form on a pug's butt. Yeah, it is kind of disturbing. And I've seen it on more than one pug. Not yes. just ours. No. I've seen it on multiple pugs. <laughs> you know, uh, God spelled backwards is dog. So hey. here we go. The there Lord you know. is my shepherd. German shepherd. <laughs> Okay. All right. Let's get back on topic here. Let's just try to to keep things on a level. So 
yeah, facial recognition. That's what we were talking about. This facial recognition response, this is back to the study. Uh, the spatial recognition response happens lightning fast in our brains. And the study showed that this actually happens within a few hundred milliseconds. It's instantaneous. Most of the time, yeah. it is instantaneous. We don't have to think about it too much. And we, we see these things even out of the corners of our eyes. And just looking out into the trees or a mountaintop or just looking in the sky at the right moment and seeing a cloud that has these features, it happens instantaneously. And the study also says that we know these objects are not truly faces, yet the perception of a face lingers. That's Professor Allais again. We then end up with something strange, a parallel experience that is both a compelling face and an object, two things at once. The first impression of a face does not give way to the second perception of an object. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. This error is known as face pareidolia, and it is such a common occurrence that we accept the notion of detecting faces and objects as normal. But humans do not experience this cognitive process as strongly for other phenomena. So we are programmed, for whatever reason, we are programmed to see faces. So when it shows up on a piece of toast or a banana or a potato or in a cloud in the sky, to some people, it just it means something. All it means is that there are physical anomalies and random patterns that our brains just latch onto yep. and assign meaning to. And it does it with a lot of other things, not just faces. That's why I do kind of hold to Obi-Wan's philosophy on this one. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. <laughs> know what you're seeing and take it at, pardon the pun, but face value. <laughs> These next few... Now, we're going to move away from the whole faces on toast and shrouded touring thing. These next few come directly from an article from The Guardian. And they have a really good article on holy relics and hallowed objects and whatnot. But we're going to take a look at just a few of these. First, there's this is this is my personal favorite. This this is as P.T. Barnum as it gets. OK, you've got the blood of St. Januarius. Worshippers in Naples gather every September to see a miracle at the southern Italy city's cathedral. St. Januarius does something special in September. That I find interesting. <laughs> Januarius, September. But apparently, the dried blood of St. Januarius, martyred in the 4th century CE, is preserved there and has an organic connection with the city's well-being. Every September, and on two other days in the year, the red powder liquefies it becomes living blood and the city is safe from volcano earthquake and plague hmm. pagan as fuck and nothing more than carnival sideshow magic if that so they come to venerate saint januarius in september and for the record that's kind of a neat trick i have to wonder if anyone ever actually gets to watch this miracle happen. I mean, people are so gullible. I'm guessing that no one actually watches this happen. Yeah. That it's all done kind of behind the scenes. And look, look, look. And even in the year 2022, there are people that buy into it, that get sucked into this thing and allow it to continue to be an event in this place. Yeah. And, you know, people are particularly gullible in matters that promise them eternal life. Hmm. So... Anything that's associated with their religion, they're definitely going to latch on to pretty damn hard. Then we've got the head of John the Baptist. I mean, how stupid are people? 
How stupid are people? And let me tell you, in terms of Catholic relics, these people love their dance macabre. They really, really do. So many relics revolve around dead people, but I found this one particularly interesting. Salome famously asked Herod for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This most famous of severed heads had a long afterlife as a relic. Amiens Cathedral was built in the Middle Ages as a shrine for it, and a replica of the Baptist's head is still kept there, although the original was stolen in the 19th century. Wow. Yeah, the original, because there's absolutely no doubt, no doubt that this was this guy's head. I mean, it's not every day you see decapitated heads, right? They're kind of a difficult commodity, especially back then. You know, not a whole lot of beheadings going on. The next one, oh God, this one's gross. This this, this, one's, this one's just a little gross. The holy foreskin. Yeah, yeah, you heard it right. It is said that when young Jesus Christ was circumcised, his foreskin was preserved. Because of course it was. In the Middle Ages, it became a much coveted relic, and several churches claimed to own part or all of it. There's your first clue, Sherlock. They can't all be the one. How the hell are you going to determine which one is the one at that point? Um, But the foreskin was held to have great powers. Uh (laughs) However, (laughs) I I could barely get through this with, with a straight face. However, the various relics of it were discredited by the end of the 18th century. Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) And on a personal note, ew. Ew. Okay? Just ew. But it gets better. Here's where all the goat stuff comes into play. We're going to talk a little bit about St. Rosalia. You know, I almost skipped over this one until I found (laughs) it in another article and said, oh, fuck, no, we've got to talk about this. St. Rosalia lived in Sicily during the 12th century. Among the interesting facts of St. Rosalia's life was that she wasn't martyred as were so many other saints. Rather, she chose to isolate herself on Mount Pellegrino in a cave where she spent her last 12 years praying and devoting herself to God and, I guess, drinking bubbly water too. I guess. More than three, uh, the right people will get that. More than three centuries later, when a plague struck the region in 1624, villagers began receiving strange visions from the saint herself. In the visions, Saint Rosalia guided some of the faithful to the cave she once inhabited, where her bones were found. Villagers prayed to her bones, and shortly after, the plague ended. Because that's why the plague ended. It wasn't just dying out already. St. Rosalia's bones were preserved in a shrine in a local church and were celebrated and honored for hundreds of years. The catch? (laughs) They weren't her bones. In 1825, British geologist William Buckland examined the relics and identified the bones as belonging to, wait for it, wait for it, a goat. People weren't too keen on accepting that news, and the church still displays the bones to this day. I suppose they're historic now, regardless of their origin, but uh, here's the thing, and I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here just to to make the point clear, okay? Um, So a while ago, and this is going back, it's it's well over 10 years now, I had somebody introduce me to a really lovely Jamaican dish called curry goat, (laughs) and of course they didn't want to tell me what I was about to eat. They wanted me to try it and let them know what I thought about it. So it was actually pretty tasty. And it's I've, I've had it several times since and would definitely order it in a Jamaican restaurant. But here's the thing about curry goat. 
It's not boneless, okay? You're, we're talking about some of the cheaper cuts of the animal that are basically just chopped up with a cleaver, and then they're stewed with a bunch of different spices and what. It's delicious. It really is good, but very, very bony. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you, there is no possible way that any thinking person is going to look at the bones of a goat and think for one single solitary second that these are the bones of a person. How do they get around the shape of the skull? I mean, what, and <laughs> how, how ungodly ugly was this woman? If uh, if this is what she actually, if this was her skeleton, this is what she looked like. Yeah. No, no, you cannot, you cannot mistake goat bones for human bones, especially when you've got a whole skeleton together. They couldn't fucking tell that that was a quadruped. <laughs> just give me just a slight break here. And the crazy part is that these things are still out there. They're yeah. still on display. And there are people in this world who believe with all of their heart, mind, and strength that this is a real thing and that it is worthy of veneration. It's crazy, but it's true. They're out there. And it just absolutely boggles my mind that in the year 2022, when you have every evidence that you can weigh against this, that not only do they allow people to just keep going there and looking at these things, but no one looks at it and says, gee, you know what? That doesn't look very human to me. <laughs> it, it, you know, that's, that's one of the things about belief. It makes you really, really stupid. And when you want really, really badly to believe in something, it's difficult to explain away all the things that are wrong with it in your own mind. So you know what? I know this firsthand, so I can't really fault these people too much for it. But there's also a thing called rational thought that takes a backseat in all of these situations. And that's why these goat bones are still on display and why people still believe that it is this saint that lived in the 12th century. So moving on, now we get to talk about Doubting Thomas's finger. So there's a church in Jerusalem, Rome, called the Church of Santa Croce. I would much prefer to, to uh, attend the Church of Jim Croce. The music would be way better. <laughs> so the Church of Santa Croce claims to have the preserved finger of Doubting Thomas in its possession. This is the finger that was allegedly inserted into Jesus's wounds when Thomas had the audacity to ask for and was subsequently scolded for asking for proof that this was actually Jesus who was in their midst. Jesus wasn't big on the concept of proof himself, was he? I mean, mm, no. everything was about belief, but that's what they think of this. It's proof that some dude's finger was preserved because it penetrated the wounds of Christ. Okay. The same church claims to have three pieces of the original cross. And I'm guessing that there's no proof there either. However, back to LiveScience.com, according to accounts by 4th century church historian Socrates Scholasticus, the Roman Emperor Constantine's mother demanded that the church built on Christ's supposed crucifixion site be demolished, uncovering three crosses below. True or not, hundreds of scraps of wood venerated as pieces of the true cross spread across Europe. French theologian John Calvin of Protestant Reformation fame once dryly noted the sheer volume of these relics. He said, in brief, if all the pieces that could be found were collected together, they would make a big shipload. Yet the gospel testifies that a single man was able to carry it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it definitely is a load of ship, isn't it, uh, John mm. Calvin? 
there is a definite shipload of forgeries surrounding this. I remember watching some movie in the 80s whose title I cannot remember, where this guy was scamming people, promising a piece of Jesus's cross for something like $20. Okay, it was the 80s, so probably 1999, with a stamped self-addressed envelope. He's sitting there with about the right people will get that too. He's sitting there with a pocket knife, lobbing off pieces of his desk and putting them in envelopes. Cross relics have always been huge business, and today is no exception, as are pieces of Noah's Ark. <laughs> and, you know, people are so gullible. But because I brought it up, the search for Noah's Ark has been going on for centuries, and more than one person or expedition team has claimed to find it or the site of it, most notably at the top of Mount Ararat in Turkey. National Grid, the National Geographic, National Grid, National Geographic has done multiple articles on this. The one I uncovered was from 2010, but I know there were others. I mean, I remember them covering this in the 80s as well, along with the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. But here's the kicker, though. There's disagreement among evangelicals about this one. The 2010 article identifies an evangelical organization as claiming to have found the Ark beneath, quote, snow and volcanic debris at the top of Mount Ararat. Of course, there's a dire lack of that one element to this that actually matters, a little thing called proof. And there's also the problem of people having claimed to find the Ark in other places, too. National Geographic even covered an expedition in Iran that supposedly proved that the Ark was there. And here's a little from that article. Some archaeologists and historians took the 2010 claim that Noah's Ark had been found about as seriously as they have past ones, which is to say, not very. I don't know of any expedition that ever went looking for the Ark and didn't find it, said Paul Zemanski, an archaeologist specializing in the Middle East at Stony Brook University in New York State. So those are just a few of the examples that are out there. And what all of them have in common is that they were all used to manipulate people and try to lend validation for beliefs that can't be proven to have any power or influence in any other way. All holy relics are at least implied to have powers that prove the existence of God and the truth of the gospel. So what we learn from all this is that none of these things have any power or validity behind them. It's mostly sideshow theatrics and trickery. This way to the egress and people follow. But there is one group that uses this concept of power objects to their advantage today even more than the Catholics. And you guessed it. It's our very own evangelicals. So here's how evangelicals spin the holy object idea. And just to preface further comments on this, I'm just going to say this. If there's anything that I can lend to evangelicalism's credit, it's that they dismiss a vast majority of Catholic mysticism. They also dismiss most of these claims about Noah's Ark, too, which I find really interesting because there are so many people out there, especially people like Ken Ham, that oh, yeah. their very existences seem to hinge on this one thing being true. But oddly enough, it's one of those things that evangelicals just say, yeah, nah, <laughs> you know, the, the, these aren't real. But as evangelicals, we were taught to reject idolatry. We were taught that there really is no power in things like so-called holy relics. We didn't have to venerate statues. We didn't need to bless ourselves with holy water. No AG church that I'm aware of touts statues that weep. We were told the communion elements were emblematic and that transubstantiation wasn't a thing. So they actually did remove a decent amount of the woo yeah. from that from situations like that. 
we didn't have to pray the rosary, and baptism was a profession of faith. It wasn't a magic ritual to remove original sin. And it also didn't happen when you were a baby. It was up to you to make that decision. So all of that is wonderful until you realize that there are a lot of ways that they objectify the power of God and use physical objects for things like healing and prosperity themselves. Now, I will offer this disclaimer. Some of the more extreme examples revolve around fringe beliefs like word faith, but some do find their way through the doors of the average church too. I knew plenty of people who believed that you could be healed by having one of the church elders anoint you with oil, for example. So let's start there. The cause for belief in the power of anointing oil actually comes from the Bible. James 5, 14 through 16 says, Is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So healing and ecclesiastical whiteout right there in a little <laughs> jar. And we, we actually saw this a lot. And the power behind the oil itself varied based on the opinion of the individual. My pastor told me that the oil itself didn't have any power, but the act of anointing with oil was a matter of spiritual obedience and would be honored by God. The Bible says to do this, so we do it. But doesn't that assign power to it? Mm. The idea there is that eliminating the thing from the equation decreases the effectiveness of the action. So if it's only emblematic, why not just skip it? Now, we were also told that the communion elements were only emblems, but but we were admonished not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30 says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep." Went to the KJV for that one. Hmm. And we were taught to believe this, and I did. Mm -hmm. And I took it very seriously. When God and I weren't on the best of terms, I refused communion. And I would say things like, and I remember saying this to you flat out, I know the state of my soul and I am not going to eat and drink death unto myself. And that was, I mean, it's so bugaboo and so paranoid This is supposed to be a happy thing. Communion is supposed to be a happy thing. And just because I knew that I had these quote-unquote sins that I wasn't willing to confess, most of them having to do with being angry at God, I wouldn't do this thing because I was afraid that I would get physically sick or possibly die, or whether it would be through some kind of medical or biological cause or something else. I believed that these things had enough power that I would be in some sort of danger if I received communion in an unworthy manner. So they can talk about it being emblematic all they want, but every single time we had communion at Faith Assembly, our senior pastor would caution us about this. And he would Mm -hmm. say, don't do this in an unworthy way. If you have a beef with someone, settle it with them right now. If you have a beef with someone in this room, settle it with them right now before you partake of the Lord's Supper. So they believed that it had some power. They believed present tense, that it has some power, even if they want to call it emblematic. They absolutely positively believe that there is more to it. And that's just that. So now we're going to go back to Acts 19. 
and talk about one of the most exploited examples of enchanted objects that has made its way into evangelical circles, that being the concept of things like prayer cloths, prayer shawls, and prayer blankets. Applying Catholic logic to the situation, all of these things would be third-class relics, ordinary objects imbued with power from a higher source, and it's not like the Catholics haven't used this approach either. Everything that falls under this description has assumed powers like healing and protection, and idiots like Benny Hinn and Robert Tilton have been using them to fleece the masses for decades. And with all due respect, this is precisely the type of thing that I did when I was a Reiki practitioner. Yeah. I would perform Reiki over an object, usually a crystal, sometimes a little mm-hmm. piece of cloth. And we had an e-com for a while yeah. that sold a bunch of witchy stuff. And one of the things that I used to sell was Reiki stones that I would basically charge. They would use that word, charging right. them before I would send them out. So this is standard stuff. And it's stuff that's all been borrowed from witchcraft. And we've talked about this before and all those correlations. But you see, I saw a lot of this in my local church. Our pastor didn't hand out or sell prayer cloths, but we were encouraged to pray over certain things and use them for various purposes, most of which revolved around healing. Some were supposed to provide spiritual protection or covering so that the Holy Spirit could work within the soul of the believer without satanic influences being allowed to gain the floor. But most of it, the vast majority, had to do with healing. Now, none of these things were relics or associated with relics, but the notion of religious objects being imbued with power, along with some of the biblical references we've looked at that corroborate those beliefs, all have the same origin. What's the difference between giving someone a sliver of wood and telling them that it's from the cross of Christ and giving them a prayer cloth? The expectation is the same, that the power of the object will prove beneficial to the believer. Evangelicals may have toned it down considerably, but there is still a lot of exploitation of people's fears, wants, needs, and situations going out there that revolve around this sort of thing. There are people out there who have tutorial videos on how to bless and anoint a prayer cloth for crying out loud. One in particular that I found involved a ham-handed attempt at organizing an MLM around prayer cloths. That one never seems to have, pardon the pun, materialized. But there are plenty of other shysters out there who have made a business out of prayer cloths. This is the most far-reaching evangelical manifestation of what the Catholic Church and loads of secular medieval entrepreneurs made a practice of beginning in the Middle Ages, and that practice continues right into this present day. The local church doesn't usually try to make a profit off of prayer cloths, but there are plenty of word-faith yahoos who do. Yeah, That is the number one in, in my opinion, it's the number one thing. And I know that there are people out there that are from every corner of evangelicalism who can come up with other examples of other types of objects. And again, a lot of the same things that we used to do in Reiki, yeah. where you would just sort of charge an object. Or if it was for a child, we would take a teddy bear and lay hands on it. If it was a sick kid, a bunch right. of people would lay their hands on this teddy bear and infuse it with god's power yeah so that teddy bear would then be placed in the crib or the hospital bed of this sick child and it would promote healing you know you can imagine just how well that worked i actually got one of these weird little objects in the mail and this is from the what is it saint matthew's churches plural plural churches and this is run by a 
guy who has been doing this for like 70 years. Oh my goodness. He has been running this church by mail, basically. Wow. And what this is, it was a pretty big packet of material. I mean, for just a regular piece of junk mail. This has like five pieces of paper in it. And one of them is supposed to be a prayer rug. It is a piece of paper. It is like a, what, A4 piece of paper, regular size, maybe a little bigger, but it's paper. It's like legal size. Yeah, it's legal size. It's paper. It's like newsprint. This is not a prayer rug, but it's printed like a prayer rug. It looks like a prayer rug with Jesus' face in the middle of it. You're supposed to stare at his eyes because they're closed, and you stare at them until you can see his eyes open. Have you tried? No. But I, I, I did hold it up to light, and yeah, there are like very, very faint eyes. Okay. Like really faint. So the longer you look at it, the more likely, the more likely your brain you is to latch on to it. And fill it yeah. in. And then you're supposed to kneel on it and pray for whatever it is you want. But then you're supposed to return it. I guess it's basically you return it so they know they've got somebody on the line. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and you return it with this thing, this little quiz, mail this page back with the prayer rug. It's like, what do you need? A closer walk with Jesus? Do you want to pray for your health? A family member's health? Less confusion in my home? Do you need a money blessing? A better job? A home to call my own? A new car? And then, of course, the donation comes next. I mean, you can donate with this. Yeah. And of course, it'll work better if you donate with this. Of course it's not, it will. It's not specifically said, but yeah. it's. Well, I mean, think about the whole thing with Reiki and, and the sharing of energy. Sharing of and energy. And how yeah. paying exorbitant amounts of money for these attunements was supposed to be an exchange of energy. Yes. So yeah, then I mean, there's, there's nothing here that's unfamiliar. And it also goes back to our wicked days where... Everything was about intention. So you pour your intention into this object, into this piece of paper, and it's supposed to be, it's supposed to have spiritual significance. It's supposed to net you some kind of reward for being obedient enough to follow all of these rules and guidelines and then send this thing back to them with your kind donation. Yes. Yeah. And there's also another piece of paper in here talking. These these are all testimonials from people who have done it. The picture on here looks like this lady's last known photograph. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Blessed with almost, hold it up, hold it up. Blessed with almost $47,000 after using prayer rug. Not the prayer rug. It's just, it's it's like, it's like it's it's supposed to be a proper name. And first name is prayer, last name is rug. After using (laughs) prayer rug. $47,000. Yeah. I'm I'm guessing if we asked for proof, it would be hard to come by. It would be hard to come by. But yeah, there's that. And then after you send back the prayer rug, this is a sealed, it's a sealed um, prophecy for you. (laughs) Oh my God. And it's like a wall of text. Oh my it is goodness, a wall look at this thing. Of text. And it's all like the same things. I mean, the it's listeners like, can't see it, but I mean, it's this, ridiculous. This is, I like this, the, the whole live response format yes. with this. This is, oh my yeah. God. I got this back in 2021, and I actually had gotten another one when I was a teenager. 
Same thing? Same exact thing. So it's basically like a chain letter that's been going it, on for a while. It's basically like a t- chain letter, but it's all new printing. It's like this, I'm sorry, but nobody sent this prayer rug back and then sent an old one back out. <sighs> this is new, okay? Yeah. This is new. They say that you're supposed to send it back so that we can send it to other people. And I'm like, if you knelt on this thing, it would be destroyed. Yeah, and like you're supposed to kneel on it. How many Or touch people... it to your knees if you can't get down. Even so, just the fact that it's being handled. Yes. Folded, unfolded, refolded, even if you don't literally put it on the floor and kneel on it. I'm sorry, that's brand new. Yes. That is brand new. It is. If they're saying that they're doing that with it, you have to be really, really fucking stupid to believe it. And if you look at it, it kind of looks like the image on the Shroud of Turin. It kind of does, but it's also like way creepier. It is. That's a really creepy image of Jesus. (laughs) Yes, it is. It's very creepy. I'm just seeing this right now while we're recording this, so I I haven't had time to even go out there and check. But I wonder if there are pictures of this thing out on the internet probably there probably are i'm gonna look i'm gonna see if we can tag one on in the show notes so that people get an idea of what What we're we're sitting here and and talking about with this but no that's that's a that's a prime real modern world example of what's actually out there and it fits perfectly with what we're talking about tonight yeah and with that we're going to start winding things down just a little bit to close things out I'm just going to apply a little bit of that, their logic and reason to this situation. First, let's remember that most, if not all, religious relics are in fact fake. It makes no sense to think that Jesus's crown of thorns would be preserved for millennia and still be recognizable. It doesn't make sense that three churches all claim to have Jesus's foreskin because I'm sorry, as soon as the second one chimed in, that should have been enough to blur the lines of belief on that one. It should have, but of course it wasn't. Someone's finger, someone's bones, please. Why even consider if these things are legit? People can tell you anything about any object that they want to, and it's always a crapshoot whether or not you're going to believe. Here's the thing, though. They don't care. If you don't believe, someone else will. And as long as there remains an infinite supply of splinters from the cross, they're happy. If you need healing, let's just break this completely down to brass tacks, people. If you need healing, see a doctor. A doctor has treatments and possible solutions. A piece of fabric? Not so much. If you're struggling financially, Speak with a debt counselor. Don't carry magic rocks. And if you need something with tangible, observable proof to believe in, don't look at preserved fingers or random body parts that are alleged to belong to someone or something, but probably don't. And please don't, pardon the pun again, kid yourself into believing that a goat's bones belong to a dead saint or that a prayer cloth has any power. In the realm of tangible, observable things to believe in, you know where you really should be starting your search? By looking in the mirror. Because in this universe, there are few things that you have that much tangible evidence to base belief on. Your existence defies probability. 
You were lucky enough to be born with a brain that's capable of reason. Before you sell your cow for a bag of beans, exercise that sense of reason. Before you forsake medical treatments in favor of sleeping under a prayer blanket, before you take at face value anything anyone says about the power of any external physical thing, consider the power that rests in you to reason through situations and make good proactive decisions about your life, your health, your finances, whatever. That is real power. That is chain-breaking, mind-freeing, self-affirming power. And that power, when weighed against any mystical object, is far more likely to keep you on a path of getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.